Welcome back to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by the Fab Four, Jonah, Steve, and David. That's actually three, but I'm the fourth. Uh, We've got plenty to talk about today. We have the new GDP numbers out. Is it a recession? Is it not? And right before those numbers were announced, a deal on the Hill, Joe Manchin calling the White House to say he and Chuck Schumer have found a path forward. And we'll talk a bit about what Joe Biden's strategy is right now. Plenty, as I said, to munch on. chronological order here. We had a huge announcement that there might be another pretty big piece of legislation coming down the pike. Yeah, pretty big deal. Uh, I think virtually everybody assumed that the Build Back Better Joe Biden domestic policy um, proposals were, were dead. Joe Manchin seemed to be uninterested. He did say that he was still open to talking, that he was still having conversations, but virtually nobody believed him. He earned the score of Democrats in the Senate. They were sort of openly criticizing him. Uh, progressive activists were going after him. Uh, very, very few Democrats liked Joe Manchin uh, over the past couple weeks. And then all of a sudden, in what seems to be a Chuck Schumer um, broken promise, uh, Joe Manchin and Schumer announced this this big package that package that they are calling an inflation reduction package. I think somewhat questionably uh, yesterday, and Democrats celebrated. Republicans were angry. Part of the reason Republicans were angry is because uh, you had I think seventeen Republicans who had uh, agreed to vote for uh, another bill. Republicans in the Senate had agreed for a note vote for another bill, uh, the Chips Act, which would help industry, help the United States subsidize purchasing of chips. And Republicans agreed to that vote, I think on the assumption, promise that this Build Back Better, these new spending packages weren't going to happen, and then they happened anyway. This is not, Republicans are eager to point out to you, uh, the first time Chuck Schumer has gone back on his word. Um, he did this at the very beginning of the Trump administration uh, on several Trump cabinet secretaries who, was, who were supposed to pass by voice vote. And then Schubert allowed objections, which I think really helped sort of poison uh, relations, even at a time when relations were, were already contentious. So this is, a, this is a big package. It's a big change. Republicans are angry. Democrats seem happy. Democrats don't have a huge margin in the House, so there's some... I think there is still some suspense as to whether it it will pass the House, but I think there are reasons for Democrats to be optimistic uh, this morning about it. Jonah, just substantively, you know, Larry Summers, who predicted that we would experience pretty high inflation, sort of no friend messaging wise of the Biden administration a year ago, was part of convincing Joe Manchin that this actually uh, at least wasn't going to increase inflation compared to the help that it would be to the economy overall. Substantively on the merits, is this bill good or bad? Yes. <laughs> uh, look, I mean, I, I think a lot of the climate stuff um, is problematic in, in so far as even if we get 
all of the returns on it that we think we're that we're allegedly going to get. The benefits in terms of the actual climate are decades out. I don't think it's necessarily the right priorities right now. It's much more of a political messaging thing, even though there are real dollars attached. The expanding Obamacare, all that. I mean, I, I, I can't go full wonk on it without looking at it more closely, but I was on CNN last night with Ro Khanna, and when he was talking about all the things it was going to do and how great it was going to be for everything and everyone for all time throughout humanity, um, I was skeptical, and I remain <laughs> skeptical. Um, I think what is more sort of interesting to me is that this is basically proof that Joe Manchin is not just like the decisive factor in the Senate, but he really is at the center of American politics in a way that Joe Biden is not. Joe Manchin is more popular than, certainly in his own state, but also just more broadly, Joe Manchin is more popular than Joe Biden. Um, and, you know, uh, uh, Liberals are saying that Manchin moved more towards Biden than Biden moved towards Manchin. I'm not sure that that's entirely true. I think this positions Manchin to, to remain the kingmaker in democratic politics. And um, I think the mere fact that it's even called the Inflation Reduction Act is a sign that Manchin is more in charge of the messaging on this thing than, than the Biden administration is. Yeah, so David, uh, they called it the Inflation Reduction Act. And here's... This is an example I keep pointing to, but you know, a year ago, a Democratic congressman said that we needed to forgive all student loan debt because it would help jumpstart the economy. And then two months ago, he said we need to forgive all student loan debt because it would help bring down inflation and cool down the economy. If you're pitching the exact same policy, but saying it solves whatever the current political or, or substantive problem is... I don't believe you. You don't have credibility. This is the same bill <laughs> from a year ago, but now they're calling it an Inflation Reduction Act. Um, and, of course, it's announced, I mean, hours before we get the new GDP numbers that show uh, a 0.9 decrease, percentage decrease in GDP, which would be two quarters in a row of a GDP decrease, which colloquially has uh, meant that it's a recession. It does not literally meet the definition of recession because there's like 50 other inputs, but it puts the White House in a sticky place. So, David, how sticky is the sticky place? <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the interesting thing about this, uh, this White House is that he has so little popularity. I mean, so little popularity in part for some good reasons uh, and in part for some bad reasons. So, the good reasons I think we've talked about quite a bit on the podcast, uh, beginning with the precipitous withdrawal from Af from Afghanistan, um, and you know the the fact of the matter is we tend to hold presidents accountable when there are recessions, and we'll just I'll just continue to use the definition of recession I've been told for you know fifty three years, which is two consecutive quarters of negative growth. There are good re good reasons why Biden is really unpopular. But there are also, it's also interesting to me that if you actually go and look at his legislative record, he's been better than most recent presidents on, on signing legislation, actual legislation. So there was an infrastructure bill that Trump could never push across the finish line. There was a compromise gun control bill that was the most significant gun control in decades. He's about to get 
a climate bill um, that I think is mixed. I sort of share Jonah's view on it. It's got some good parts. It's got some bad parts. I particularly like that there's some money in there to keep nuclear plants open. I've never figured out, really understood the green green hostility to nuclear power, which seems to be a, a great way to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. He may well sign an Electoral Count Reform Act if the Democrats in Congress don't aren't absolute idiots. Um, you know, when you start to look at these slowly accumulating legislative wins, uh, he's delivered some stuff. I mean, he's he's actually delivered some policy here, but it's being swamped. It's being swamped by the chaos in the world and the more importantly, the crushing inflation at home and calling this the Inflation Reduction Act when as near as I can tell, I mean, what's the justification for it? Rebates on electric cars? Well, so the, the corporate minimum tax, which allegedly is going to raise money that, again, I don't necessarily see the connective tissue to reducing inflation, but that's something that they're saying will have some effect on inflation. Right. I mean, the Fed is far more, it's going to be impacting inflation far more. Um, but the naming, Sarah, I've long ago given up on the names of acts. I mean, they're, the names are just messaging tools. That's all they are. Um, I mean, the Electoral Account Reform Act is pretty accurate. <laughs> <laughs> but aside from that, it's all messaging. It's just all messaging. Yes, yeah, Sarah, can I ask you a question about this messaging thing? Um, a very loaded question where I preface it with my own position and then turn it into a uh -huh. question. No, uh -huh. just more seriously. Um, this It's not a recession thing. Right. Sort of it's the it's not a tuma of, you know, White House messaging. Um, if they had just said, it seems to me if they just said, look, the standard definition is that this is what a recession is. So, yeah, technically we're in a recession. They're not going to change people's minds about the state of their personal lives anyway and their pocketbook issues. But. By doing it this way, they actually got people to talk more about recessions and use the word recession more in headlines than they otherwise would. And it seems to me like this is a, just like the Inflation Reduction Act thing, this is a perfect example of how when you think all of your problems are messaging problems, you actually make your messages worse. Do I, am I missing something? So the Barbara Streisand effect on the definition of recession, right. I mean, uh, the, can you the explain the Barbara of, Streisand effect? I, I will. Hmm. Uh, for Steve, can you explain who Barbara Streisand is and then what the effect is? <laughs> Jonah proud for his Barbara Streisand knowledge. Hey, she canceled her subscription to the LA Times in protest when they picked me up as a columnist. You're damn right. I am proud of my wow. Barbara Streisand knowledge. Uh, I'm going to get the actual underlying problem uh, wrong, but like what in the, roughly the 80s, Barbara Streisand sues over libel. Nobody knew the thing, the underlying photos or whatever she was talking about, but the lawsuit got enormous headlines and then everyone knew about it, um, a thing that would have passed unnoticed. It's sort of interesting too, because it's like, well, if you have been wronged at law and you actually want redress, are you saying you shouldn't go do that? But that's a whole nother thing. We now just call it the Streisand effect, meaning you call attention to the very thing you didn't want people to pay attention to. Um <coughs> The recession thing is just so obvious to me, but they've also had another problem here, which is there was polling recently about the first Build Back Better infrastructure bill, and that basically nobody, including the vast majority of Democrats, don't know that it actually passed because Democrats 
were doing so much hemming and hawing and delaying and how bad it was and how it wasn't enough that nobody noticed when it actually happened. And so they think the Democrats just totally dropped the ball on it. I will be curious whether they fix that problem this time around, because while I totally agree with you that uh, most things aren't a messaging problem, like not only is this not a messaging problem, but most things are not a messaging problem. Sometimes there's a messaging problem and your own voters not knowing that you passed a major piece of bipartisan infrastructure legislation actually is a messaging problem. Right. And one that will be very easy for them to repeat this time. The recession thing, though, was just hilariously dumb. The percentage of Americans who now know the definition of recession has surely ticked up by 20 points. <laughs> so we should so I should I should jump in and point out that we have a very good explainer yeah. from our intern Augustus Baird on uh, the website on the dispatch website, walking people through this debate and defining and explaining the back and forth. I I think you're right. On the other hand, like, I mean, I think it was stupid for them to pick this fight. Janet Yellen was on Meet the Press this weekend and and sort of signaled that this was where they were going. The White House had put out uh, a paper last week sort of trying to, to frame the terms of the coming discussion of a recession, I think, in anticipation of these bad numbers. I, I think they were going to get bad. But I don't. I think you're right about the Streisand effect. I'm not sure this was a good messaging strategy. The the you know the alternative is everybody uses this the definition of recession that everybody's already used and declares that we're in a recession. I don't think that they're necessarily in a better place for having not ha- had that argument. You're the president holding the recession bag. You're you're screwed on that front. But imagine if they had put all this energy to pointing out that Europe's in a recession and that all these other countries are. So clearly Joe Biden did not cause the recession instead of the definition of recession, which sort of implies that it is his fault if there is a recession. And to to the the David's point, I don't think it's Joe Biden. Like Joe Biden did not cause this recession or else Joe we'd have to use Joe Biden to explain everything else that's going on, just like the move to the right that Western Europe's experiencing isn't Donald Trump. Right. So I think I think they're they're thinking, and I haven't talked to anybody there, so this is I'll be clear that this is me speculating. What what I think they're trying to do by having had the fight rather than just concede that two two consecutive quarters of negative growth is a recession, which by the way, many Biden top economic advisors have said in the past, they have used that sort of technical definition of, of recession, and they're now disputing their own previous characterization of it. But I think what they're trying to do is highlight the fact that this is a weird economy, right? I mean, it's not good. People are not excited about it. There's a lot to be frustrated about. Inflation is crazy. But there are these these things that are outliers. And, and Sarah, as you point out, you have people I would regard, you know, certainly I don't agree with them on, on everything, but people like Larry Summers, um, Jason Furman, the president, President Obama's former chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, who I regard as intellectually honest center-left economists, um, who have been critical of the administration on all this stuff, will point out these other things in the economy and say, well, you know, it is the case that that inflation is way too high, that they mishandled this, but look at these four things. And I imagine that, that the thinking was, let's at least have a fight over the definition so that people recognize that there are these other inputs. Um, I don't, at the end of the day, I don't think that that matters either. I'm just trying to explain their thinking. Ultimately, like the president is the president is president two two consecutive negative quarters of growth. And this was a bad report, probably worse than the top line numbers suggests. I mean, you had Powell, the Fed chairman Powell say, 
We expected bad numbers. This is worse than we expected. He said that this morning. So it's a ba- it's a bad report. I just think there there might be some at least thinking behind their strategy. If I'm not convinced that their strategy is right. Look, I, I I agree. If the proposition, I just had a long talk with Dave Bonson about this on the run yesterday. I agree. If the proposition is the White House has an argument to say that this is a weird economy, that this is sort of unprecedented coming out of COVID, coming out of all of this kind of stuff, and that this does not look like your normal recession, and there are, there's a lot more good stuff going on than during a normal recession, including you know all, near full employment. That, that's a perfectly legitimate argument to make. My only point is, is the second you say, you know, um, it's it's not a floor wax, it's a dessert topping. Totally. Everyone starts having an argument about it, and then they start yeah. doing this incredibly tiresome media hypocrisy game. This is how the AP described the recession in 1982. So now everyone's being a hypocrite. And they should just, it just seems to me if they're if if they like, oh man, we're going to eat it, they're going to call it a recession. So yeah, okay, so this meets this one technical definition of recession. And then talk about how there's, but don't worry, right? I mean, it's very similar to sort of like the original arguments about whether like it was a pandemic. Is it a pandemic? Is it not a pandemic? What, what is a pandemic? Yada, yada, yada. Right. And it's like, yeah, okay, so this meets some technical definition of a recession. Bill Clinton could have just said, hey, look, it's, yes, it meets this technical definition of, of, of a recession, and that's fine, but look at all these other shiny things. And these guys just don't have that those kind of, that kind of messaging sophistication. No, I and agree. So I agree. They, they made a semantic argument and a technical argument, the centerpiece of the spin on this, which I just think was just an ex- one more example of stupidity. I guess my 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 only point is, would you rather be arguing about whether or not this is a recession, even if you're probably on the losing end of that argument, or arguing about just how bad this res- these numbers are, this report is. I mean, if you've got the Fed chairman saying, this is worse than I thought, and you've got these indications that the, that the contraction is greater than people had anticipated, I'm, I'm guessing that their thought was, let's, ha- I mean, they didn't, you know, we don't know how, how much they knew the specifics of these numbers, but we know that they knew the bad numbers were coming. Their thought was better to have a de- debate over whether we're in a recession or not than have um, then sort of concede the debate on the terms that this is awful in these numbers. The contraction is getting much, much worse. And I think Bill Clinton could have said, whatever, whatever these fancy pants people in the Beltway want to call this thing, what I know is people are hurting, right? And I feel your pain. And sort of like back when right. Rudy Giuliani was sane and a, and a good politician, when he was asked how many people died on 9-11, on the 9-11 attack, he just said, more than we could bear. And like, yeah. The the subliminal messaging of having this technical argument where all the pointy heads get in and take their different points of view just makes Washington and the administration seem out of touch because nobody actually gives a rat's ass about whether it's called a recession or not. They care about their tax, their their gases are being tax, gas prices are too high, their groceries are too high. And that's my point about the bad messaging of the White House is they want to message how this is going to be talked about on Nicole Wallace's show at five o'clock. Not how people are going to be talking about it in their living rooms around the country. It's a mess. It's a cable news, Twitter news cycle messaging strategy, not an American messaging strategy. And it's particularly damaging because it's so symbolic of all the stupid other arguments right. we have about regular words now. <laughs> so, right. 
you know, we're, we're in this world where you can't even agree on what racism is anymore. Right. Like it's not a recession. It just identifies as a, as a recovery. <laughs> well, and the White House does have huge, huge pro- credibility problems because of, you know, what they said about inflation, right? I mean, inflation was going to be transitory. They told us right. in Afghanistan that, that the Taliban weren't going to come back into control. I mean, they, they've made these claims again and again and again. So I think people look and say, ah, I'm not going to necessarily trust their definition of, in- of inflation. Okay. So given that, uh, let's do one more little moment on Joe Manchin because David, I think you mentioned how low Joe Biden's approval numbers that Joe Manchin was actually more popular than Joe Biden. Maybe it was you, Jonah. Uh, And that's true. But what I find interesting is when you get into those Joe Biden numbers, it's really with progressives that he is uh, most unpopular. It's the Republicans, obviously, very unpopular. And then within the Democratic Party, it's progressive that he's not popular with. And I'm curious... um, I don't think that the recession affects progressives' thoughts of Joe Biden nearly as much as it affects that middle ground of Democrats, potentially. Um, and <laughs> it was also interesting to me that it came out that Joe Manchin had not talked to Joe Biden since the talks last fell apart. And then calls, you know, this week, like, hey, good news, Chuck and I figured this out, <laughs> which... Uh, Fascinating, by the way, that the White House has not been talking to their swing vote, if you will, at all. And second, that they had nothing to do with this actually coming together, that this is Chuck Schumer's win alone. And you combine that with progressives already being mad at the president. I'm not sure they're going to think this is some sort of fixie thing. Um, And then the recession, some sort of fixie thing. Um, (laughs) I don't know. I feel like this has actually been a bad week for Joe Biden. Yeah, I, I think uh, I think it has been a bad week. I mean, the recession thing is just such an own goal. I mean, it's just, you know, the Streisand effect was such a perfect uh, analogy. And uh, by the way, I do want to say that I've, I skipped my style guide earlier. I referred to Joe Manchin, uh, Joe Manchin, third of his name, mm-hmm. Lord of the coal-soaked hills, the, the, the man who's essentially running the United States of America now. But... I think you hit on something that's really interesting, Sarah, because earlier I said there are a number of of actual bipartisan compromises and Biden came in and said, hey, look, I've been a senator forever. Uh, I can do bipartisan compromises. But time and again, you don't get the sense he was involved in them. (laughs) So, you know, you have the infrastructure bill. He wasn't didn't seem to be the captain of that ship. He wasn't the captain of the ship on the on the gun control gun control compromise. He's definitely wasn't the captain of the ship on Electoral Count Reform Act. This one he seems to be informed about. So unlike, say, uh, an Obama, who always put himself at the head of any sort of legislative initiative, it seems as if Biden is reacting to what coalitions of senators are doing. And it's the coalitions of senators who are driving the bus on this legislative uh, on these legislative reforms, not the White House, which is a logical reason why he's not necessarily getting all the credit. But Steve, is this a, uh, it'll be amazing what you can get done if you don't care who gets the credit. And so Joe Biden understands how the Senate works and is pushing this actually on to Chuck Schumer and Joe Manchin because he just wants to get it done. Or is this just really bad politics? Yeah, it's very interesting. I definitely think there's an inside out, um, uh, problem with the way that that 
people think this will all play. Because in Washington, you can sense that Democrats have a spring in their step again. Everybody's happy. Elizabeth Warren is saying nice things about Joe Manchin. That doesn't happen very often. Um, and there is this sense, I think you can detect it in, in some of the reporting too, that, wow, this is a big win for Joe Biden. This brings back his domestic policy agenda. He's back on track. You know, I, that is not how it's going to be seen. I mean, I think I can understand why they took the strategy they took in terms of messaging, but I don't think at the end of the day, it's going to make a difference. I mean, people do care what they see and what they feel. And things are not going well. They're certainly not improving. And they seem uh, to be on a track to get worse. And if we believe the, the reports this morning, accelerating decline. So I think that I think it's not necessarily a good week for Joe Biden at all. But you're going to hear from a lot of people in Washington who say that it is a good week for Joe Biden. Can I call a quick audible on this? Because I know we're not supposed to talk about it, but um, or we weren't planning on talking about it. But the Griner proposed swap thing in Russia. I don't quite get it. And it sort of plays into this because can you can you explain explain? Yeah, what, so uh, what, what's Griner's first name? Um, Brittany. Brittany. Brittany, Brittany. So uh, WNBA uh, star was uh, arrested in Russia allegedly for having, or she, I guess she admits it, uh, 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 hash things in her, hash vape things in her luggage. Um, and basically it's a bogus, you know, celebrity hostage taking by Putin's government. And uh, Anthony Blinken revealed yesterday that in June the United States offered to trade this really heinous arms dealer uh, nicknamed Merchant of Death. They made, Nick Cage, they made a bad Nick Cage movie. I know that's some people think that's a contradiction in terms um, about the guy's life. And um, in, a, in an attempt to swap for Griner and this guy, a uh, former Marine named Whelan, who was arrested on alleged spying charges. I'm willing to cut the Biden administration lots of slack on this kind of stuff because this is just like a no-win thing. It's a terrible situation. Um, uh, he didn't cause this, you know, and all that kind of stuff. I'm not sure it's the right decision, but the only reason I bring it up is, is that they're releasing, giving out word that they tried this and they never got a response from Russia. And I find the politics of that really fascinating. Because I don't think you get a lot of credit with anybody when you're trying to get an American hostage home by saying, at least we tried. <laughs> I don't know that you get it from the progressives. I don't know. I, you're not going to get it. You know, it's not, that's not going to be the message on Fox and Friends. And it seems to me like it's underscore, it underscores this, this narrative of Biden being ineffectual. And I just, I honestly don't get what the thinking was. Was this going to like add more pressure on the Putin regime to find out that like, they're not returning our calls. I mean, I, I, I honestly, I just don't understand it. I think, I think the chronology, and somebody can correct me if I'm wrong. I think CNN broke the story and and explained that this was the offer from the Biden administration and had been the offer back in June. And Blinken sort of didn't actually confirm it, confirm it, but the administration acknowledged, in effect, yes, this is what happened. So I don't think the administration was out touting it. Um, as, as part of a bigger strategy. I think that to me that this raises real substantive questions about what he's doing. I mean, if you're willing to make these kinds of deals and, and Victor Bud is a very, very bad person, um, 
targeting Americans. That was that was the point of what he was doing. With it. Um, are you are you not incentivizing this kind of hostage taking? Yeah, right? I agree. If you're with willing that. to make these make these these swaps. I just think it 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 feels to me. I mean, to to, to go back to the comparison we've made before here, it feels to me like Jimmy Carter. We can, in effect, or Bo Bergdahl. I mean, there's all sorts of ways you could go south on them politically. I just don't get the right. strategy of it. Um, I didn't. That's not the how I remember it. Is that CNN scooped it and then I may be they uh, admitted it. But if you're right, that helps explain it. All right. Uh, one fact checking note because there will already be comments in the comments section of people who didn't get this far, and I want to uh, <clears throat> correct a falsehood I said about the Streisand effect. I said it was from the 80s. It wasn't. It's just that Barbara Streisand is from the 80s. It was actually <laughs> 2003. Really? Uh, that that lawsuit happened, which feels so late to me. And it was, it was a photographer. It was about privacy and, uh, and her, her mansion. She wanted, she wanted the Not photos Joe taken mansion. down. Mansion, mansion, mansion. <laughs> um, yeah, that's blogosphere era. Yeah, isn't that weird? At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. So moving forward about Joe Biden making weird decisions, uh, we were talking about this a little. Here's a quote that Joe Biden gave uh, in his first uh, Rose Garden address after his COVID recovery. When my predecessor got COVID, he had to get helicoptered to Walter Reed Medical Center. He was severely ill. Thankfully, he recovered. When I got COVID, I worked from upstairs. Now, without any context, that really sounds like he is cruising for a bruising from Donald Trump. It just really wants to egg him on and, and get some reaction. Like in context, I do think it was a little different. He was saying, you don't need to be president to get these tools for your defense. He was talking about, uh, obviously, the vaccine, booster shots, home test, easy to use, effective treatments. We got through COVID with no fear. I got through it with no fear, a very mild discomfort because of these essential life-saving tools. And then was saying, you know, when President Trump got it much earlier, he got much more sick and, and I didn't. Nevertheless, Steve, that's not how it was covered. It seems like he could have used any number of people or just not a real person. But he chose to use Donald Trump and say that Donald Trump uh, got helicoptered to Walter Reed and he worked upstairs in a suit. Does this mean Joe Biden's running for president? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's. It, I think it's really interesting because it, what makes what makes me interested in this is that it's not an isolated incident, right? This is part of a pattern from Joe Biden. Really, in the past week, uh, we talked about this a little bit on on Dispatch Live on Tuesday night. Um, and if you're listening to this podcast and you're not listening to Dispatch Live, you should become a member and join us for Dispatch Live every Tuesday at eight o'clock because it was a fun and interesting discussion. I think. Joe Biden has been picking fights with Donald Trump. He picked fights with him over law and order issues. He went after him a couple times, both uh, in speeches and on Twitter for January 6th. He's going out of his way in the past week to tweak Donald Trump, I think seeking to provoke a response, which we can be pretty sure is coming. Why is Joe Biden doing this? 
I mean, I guess I've been operating under the assumption after having had conversations with Democrats around town that Biden was not likely to run and that he was keeping open the possibility that he was going to run again because he didn't want to be treated as a lame duck president, not because he was likely to run again. I mean, I think, you know, even Democrats in private moments will tell you that they get worried about Biden, that they don't see him as an effective leader, that they share the concerns of everybody when he gives a speech that he might end up down one of these verbal cul-de-sacs and, and not know where he is or why he was there. And many of them think he won't run for president. So I guess I was assuming that that was the case. This raises questions to me. Why is he picking these fights with Donald Trump? Is he seeking to elevate Donald Trump so that Donald Trump takes him on? There was a New York Times poll that shows that even with Joe Biden's approval ratings pretty low, he would beat Donald Trump in a head-to-head 44-41, I believe the numbers were. So does all this suggest that Joe Biden is in fact running for president, wants a second term, uh, and will go? I, I would say maybe it does. The, the, the point, the problem, the, the, the concern I have is that it comes at the same time that we're hearing these stories about, um, or, or reading these reports about Merrick Garland supposedly expanding the investigation into January 6th and related issues and asking questions about Donald Trump. Um, Jonah had a really good G-file last night saying, well, of course, Merrick Garland is going to be asking these questions. And that's, that's correct. But if it's the case that the Justice Department is going to include Donald Trump, um, and I think given what we've heard from the January 6th committee witnesses, they will have to, it's really risky, it seems to me, for Joe Biden to seem to be picking more personal fights with Trump at this particular moment, whatever the potential political benefit. Um, Sarah, can I ask you a question about that that we talked about sort of offline? Yeah. I think would be interesting for people. What is the justice, what's your understanding of, of what the Justice Department would tell Joe Biden if the investigation were expanding to include Donald Trump and Trump's activities as it relates to January 6th? Nada. I think that the White House, um, it would not be outside of protocol for the Department of Justice to give the White House a 30-minute hour heads up before announcing an indictment. But even then, oftentimes, the decision gets made that it's actually not in the White House's interest to have to say that they were given a heads up. Uh, And so just to not do that, um, it, you know, obviously the choice to prosecute a former president for the first time in U.S. history carries so much historical, political, all this other weight. I won't be surprised if that moment actually comes that there is a discussion within the Department of um, whether, in fact, that has to be a call made by the president himself and not by the attorney general under sort of a unitary executive theory. I would say that absolutely that is a decision that Joe Biden as president needs to make, not Merrick Garland. That being said, in terms of the investigation, nope, 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 nope. (laughs) I don't think they're telling them anything. Of course, I've said I don't think they're actually doing anything unusual here, aside from asking witnesses at this point questions about Donald Trump. But wait, can I press you on that? Yeah. So you think Joe Biden would have to be the one to make the call to investigate Donald Trump? To indict Donald Trump. Indict. To indict Donald Trump? To charge a former president with a crime for the first time in U.S. history. I think that call needs to be made by the president. Wow. 
I'm not sure that's right. I think that's an entirely defensible position, right? I mean, it's just With such it, a sui generis thing. Were, what you know. about if Trump were president? And his attorney general goes goes to Donald Trump and say, hey, you can tell us who to indict. Uh, so, you know, you can't indict a sitting president. <laughs> no, if Trump were president and we were talking about, I mean, Donald Trump would probably like to uh, indict a lot of his political opponents. Oh, oh, OK. So we're in the. Yeah, got it. Uh, so can Donald Trump um, indict Hillary Clinton or uh, Barack Obama? Um, so I think the Hillary Clinton example is interesting because it was his campaign opponent, Barack Obama, obviously a former sitting president. Again, it's actually, there's nothing in the DOJ guidelines about this. Generally speaking, DOJ would not ask permission or even let the White House know about a a pending indictment of anyone really, except where it has particular national security implications. Like uh, if you're about to indict ministers in a foreign country and the president's about to go visit that country, obviously you let the White House know. Um, Again, there's no rule against it. It is actually both to protect the White House and to protect the integrity of the prosecutions. But when you're getting into such a, um, yeah, a sui generis historical thing, um, I, it's not, again, that the attorney general doesn't have the authority to do it. I just think it would be a mistake. I can easily imagine Biden not wanting to make that decision. Nobody wants to make that decision. Isn't that the decision, right? I mean, this is, I don't want to get into Carl Schmitt and bad Nazi philosophers, but uh, the decision not to decide is also the decision because, you know, if, if he, if Garland says we have enough to indict, I think we should indict, but I think it's gotta be your call. If Biden says, no, it's your call. It's really, he's making the call, right? I mean, there's just, there's sort of no way out of that box. Unless Garland goes in and says, we know something about Trump and we're not going to tell you. I mean, like it's got to be, um, I don't think there's a way the president of the United States can avoid making that decision, even if he's not making that decision. So the way, by the way, that I think it would get actually presented in a meeting with the White House counsel and the president, I think this would be incredibly closely held. I think it would be the chief of staff, the White House, um, uh, sorry, the chief of staff, the president and the White House counsel and the attorney general. Um, It would be, we have decided that we have sufficient evidence to indict the president. How, and we would move forward in any other case. However, we are coming to you to basically, you would not present it as a yes or no. You would say, Right. Do you give us the order to not do this? Right. I, I could I, I could see that much more realistically than Joe Biden saying, I approved the indictment of the president, which then immediately turns us into Joe Biden versus Donald Trump, more so than it would be. It will be that again, anyway. I don't think we're anywhere that, close. I just happens, want to be very clear. I don't think we're close. Like, not yeah. even in the ballpark. That, that discussion isn't happening at DOJ in my opinion, again, from not with inside information. Um, okay, so David, uh, my theory is that Joe Biden is doing this, that it's a mistake, but that the taunting of Trump, the constantly bringing him up is actually to go Trump into announcing before the midterms because Democrats believe that will help them. And you're already seeing some of that, you know, the House numbers have stayed about the same. But at this point, the Senate numbers are slipping away from Republicans. You can argue that's a polling problem, that there shouldn't be that big a discrepancy. But frankly, the Senate candidates have more baggage. There's weirder choices. 
And yeah. it's a lot narrower margin. You know, if, for instance, J.D. Vance loses in Ohio to Tim Ryan and then uh, D- Dr. Oz loses in Pennsylvania um, to Fetterman, there's basically no way for Republicans to take back the Senate. And if Donald Trump gets in, the Democrats, I think, are thinking correctly that it will help them a little bit on the margin. And so why not goad Donald Trump into announcing early so he can get out there and just whack Joe Biden every night? I just think that's, again, uh, like Democrats funding these, getting involved in Republican primaries to fund people who want to overturn valid elections. Um, be careful what you wish for. Goading Donald Trump into running for president didn't work out well for Barack Obama. Wanting him to be the nominee didn't work out well for Hillary Clinton. And so here we go again. I don't think there's one thing subtle about this in any way, shape, or form. Even if he's not goaded into running, they're trying to goad him into asserting himself more dramatically on on the national stage. Because the bottom line is, they want to run against Donald Trump. Well, I should modify that. They want to run against Donald Trump and the weirdo candidates. (laughs) So they're happy running, you know, against people with lots of secret sons, for example. Um, But they're very, very happy to run against Donald Trump. And the reason why they're very, very happy to run against Donald Trump is they can look at the polling that says that Donald Trump's really unpopular. Even Joe Biden, who is super unpopular, according to, you know, some of the best polling out there, would still narrowly maybe eke out a victory over Donald Trump. So there's nothing. This is all about poking and and provoking, uh, trying to get him into the race. I think that they would celebrate if he got into the race before the midterms. I think the Democrats would look at that as a big W. Of course, we're sitting here jumping up and down, yelling, what's the Jonah phrase, banging uh, our spoons on the high chair uh, with exactly that be careful what you wish for statement. But I do wonder if the Trump decision is the Trump decision, and now it's just a matter of timing. And I can easily see the Democrats thinking that if it's just a matter of timing, from our perspective, now is sooner is better than later. But the decision, as I said, this is nothing subtle. It's all about getting Trump more prominent, more involved, because Democrats think that's better for them. Yeah, I agree. There's, 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 uh, I mean, I'm sure you could find a, with an electron mic- microscope, some molecules of subtlety somewhere. But, um, but <laughs> the only thing that progressives like about Joe Biden, at least prior to this mansion thing, we'll see, you know, how that plays out. But like, as of yesterday, the only thing that progressives like about Joe Biden is that. Donald Trump hates that he beat Donald Trump and that Donald Trump hates him. And that when Biden makes fun of Donald Trump, they like it. And so the more you can have the crowding out of other issues, um, it doesn't have to be that they want him to run for 2024. I think you're right about using him as a foil for 2022. Um, but it's also, it could also be in the back of Biden's mind if I can define my existence as being the yin to Trump's yang, you know, um, that can bolster me as like the, the standard bearer for the Democratic Party and scare away a bunch of potential challengers. Uh, but it, I think it's probably an all the above strategy for them because they just, it's, it's the only messaging that works 
for Biden within the Democratic Party at this point. So Joe Biden running for president in 2024. Boy, it's a terrible Steve, idea. Though seeing a huge uptick in polling questions related to what the field looks like without Joe Biden in it. Um, now we've been seeing that on the Republican side, but it actually is an open field. Treating the Democratic side like it's an open field is weird. Some of this comes after a New York, uh, sorry, New Hampshire poll showed Pete Buttigieg ahead of Joe Biden with potential New Hampshire primary voters. Now, I want to be clear, it was within the margin, and we're talking about the difference between 17 and 16 points. So not a runaway. But the fact that they're asking the polling question, I don't... And that Joe Biden was at 16. And that Joe, One a sitting six. president, was at 16 points with his own primary voters. It, Steve, I don't think that you're right in terms of what Joe Biden is thinking. But boy, are you right in terms of clearly what the party is thinking what um, what pollsters, I mean, what operatives are thinking. They are planning for a world. I mean, the headlines in my inbox today, uh, governors fuel 2024 chatter amid, amid frustration with Biden. I mean, it's, it's every article that I'm seeing. Uh, and yet, I don't know. I mean, I still stand by my prediction that Joe Biden is the best the Democrats can do because if Joe Biden isn't the nominee. He has to decide whether to endorse his vice president or not, who everyone believes will lose to any Republican nearly. Uh, And if not, that would cause kerfuffle. And then it would create an enormous Democratic primary where they all beat each other up. Last time, it pushed everyone really far to the left where they're all talking about defunding the police and just wild far left things in a primary, which isn't good for the Democrats. And Joe Biden beat Donald Trump last time. On the other hand, if you've looked at Joe Biden's presidency, you might come to the other conclusion that he's not the most effective Democrat. And he's not. I mean, Democrats don't want him to run. Republicans don't want him to run. The majority of the country thinks he's doing a crummy job. He, he, he struggles virtually now, virtually every time he speaks. There is some kind of a gaffe or some kind of a pause. I think this was in evidence when he ran. It's pretty clear that it's gotten significantly worse over the course of his presidency. The economy is in tatters. He blew Afghanistan. I mean, I think there is a, a significant reason for Democrats not to want Joe Biden to run for president. And you've seen this in the poll, the poll I mentioned earlier, the New York Times-Siena poll of about a week and a half ago. The majority of Democrats didn't want him to run. People don't want the guy as president. Uh, I think the Pete Buttigieg poll in New Hampshire was interesting. Buttigieg, I think, had 17%, if I remember correctly, and Biden had 16 uh, It's slightly less interesting when you remember that Buttigieg uh, came in a virtual tie, came in second in New Hampshire when he ran, um, and lost by, I think, one point to Bernie Sanders. So he was popular up there. It's a, it's a, strange, it's a strange place, but it's he's not the president. He, I mean, New Hampshire is a wonderful, wonderful place. It is an... Um, a mavericky, a mavericky place. Yes. Politically strange. Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like you can defend New Hampshire, colon, it's a strange place and without a lot of caveats, which by the way, <laughs> brings to another topic, which is- But I love New Hampshire. I mean, I love New Hampshire. <laughs> um, I'm not gonna, I spent so much time in Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina. I, ex- I because I had lived up there, I expected to love New Hampshire the most because I think it's just beautiful. And I gotta say, walking away, Iowa, 
like raised my spirits every time I was there. It was just such a pleasant, happy, joyful place to be. New Hampshire, they seemed so deeply (laughs) unhappy and cold all the time. And South Carolina just had incredible food. Um, Okay, but speaking of those three states, the Democrats, the DNC is meeting to change their primary calendar, by the by. Uh, Iowa clearly isn't going to happen. There's just so many other states that Democrats can pick. Michigan, uh, I think, is probably leading in some respects of who the Democrats would pick for their Midwest region early state. But it's sort of interesting because if you look at that Northeast region and they've said they're going to pick one state from each region and they're looking at diversity and uh, uh, swing voters, right? They don't want to just have deep blue states because this is an opportunity for potential general election voters to meet the candidates as well during a primary. That Northeast region, New Hampshire is still kind of their best bet. So I think New Hampshire may stay, which makes that poll actually more important. All right, David and Jonah, final thoughts on Biden 2024 or uh, literally anything else that we've talked about so far. So uh, (laughs) first of all, I just, it's transparently obvious to me that Biden is too old to be president again. And I I mean that in the sense Mm -hmm. that there are, there may be, there are people who could be sworn in at the age of 82, which is what he would be in 2025, I believe. Um, uh, but it's just obvious he's just it's it's it, this is not a slight on him it's not ageism or whatever i just it's and i think that's going to be so unbelievably obvious to voters as we move forward it's so obvious in the polling um and it's interesting sarah longwell um from over at, in uh Re- i guess republican accountability project um she did an interesting focus group that she writes about in the atlantic and she points out something that i hadn't really focused on but like one of the reasons why some people are turning on Trump is that he would be a automatically a lame duck president when elected. I mean, this assumes he would leave office what voluntarily, but, um, what's interesting is I'm trying to think, and I just thought of this now, but like, when was the last time we had a presidential election between two candidates, both of whom would be lame ducks upon being elected? And, I think you add that into the general exhaustion with baby boom, with with the baby boomers running everything, and um, I think that uh, I see Sarah heeing to the Google machine like Batman going down the secret yeah. pole into the Batcave. Um, uh, uh, I think there's going to be a much stronger impulse towards a new younger generation politics post twenty twenty two that I think it's in the incentive of Ron DeSantis and a bunch of people on the Republican side, and it's in the incentive of Pete Buttigieg and a bunch of people on the Democratic side to play into, and the media is going to eat it up, and they'll figure out a a less-than-cruel way to to hype it. You know, one thing that I think about is— By the way, the answer actually is 1892 for those listening at home, and we're like, well, the only option is when Cleveland won his second term— and yes, no. What Cleveland was running no, against Harrison. No, there was Harrison. no limit on. There was no limit. Oh, there was no amendment yet. Oh, David, mm. oh, you're right. Man. Of course, it doesn't come till FDR, till yeah. post FDR. Post FDR. Um, Way to just like oh, swat me. down that dunk. Wow. Oh, I mean, it was a hard <laughs> swat. And how absurd are you, swat? Well done. But nevertheless, <laughs> Cleveland was running against the uh, Harrison. Got the renomination from the and Republican there was a Party. tradition about that kind of thing. There was a tradition. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, Norms. continue. I, at this point, I have to say it's hard for me to see Biden saying I'm not running 
At the same time, it's also hard for me to see when he's that vulnerable, an ambitious Democrat not challenging him, which is, I think, something that we don't talk enough about, which is that there would be a primary challenge. There will be a primary challenge for sure. And so in many ways, that could be the better solution for the Democrats because Kamala Harris doesn't challenge him. I, that would be shocking if the sitting vice president challenged the president who, who it would be fun. Uh, selected that would be fun. And <laughs> that would be incredible. So maybe he runs. And if he runs, then I would see a primary challenger. And that primary challenger would have a very good chance, depending on who it is. And that may be the way out for Democrats from this, this, this conundrum where well, does Biden drop out and then in, endorse or not endorse his vice president? And if he endorses his vice president, does that put over the top somebody who's can't beat the can't beat the Republican? Um, and you know, look, it's still in all it's still quite possible we end up with Biden Trump the sequel. And the question that I have, if we have Biden Trump the sequel, does somebody come in and Ross Perot the thing? Because there will be incredible discontent, incredible discontent across the country with that as the race. And so that's the thing I think about. If there was ever a time made for a charismatic, well-resourced third-party challenger, I'm just going to put it out there. I'm not going to put a likelihood thing on this. You guys can, you can tell me to put the bong down. That's fine. The solution (laughs) to so many of our problems, other than me winning Mega Millions, is... Garland actually does, and I agree with you, Sarah, he doesn't have it, not even close to having it, he does find something that's truly indictable for Trump. And in a grand bargain of statesmanship, Joe Biden offers Trump a pardon for everything, works with state AGs to get them to go along with it in exchange for not running again. And then Joe Biden said, I was elected to stop Donald Trump. I've done it twice now. I'm done. I'm going to play with my German shepherds and my grandkids. That would be the way to solve all of these problems. And um, I'm not saying it's likely, but I don't think it's zero possibility either. This is Mike Pence getting all the Republicans in a room and saying, I actually am here to uh, protect the country from another Donald Trump presidency. That's what I was doing on January 6th, not just trying to become president myself because I thought that the current president was obviously going to get 25th Amendmented or impeached. Um, and therefore, none of us are running for president. We're going to get behind one person. Um, what else is that? Oh, the chief justice stepping down so that Joe Biden gets another nomination to the Supreme Court. Or appoints himself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't think so. But the fanfic version of this series has been lit. Okay. We're going to move to Not Worth Your Time. And I feel like we have a good one. This week, Donald Trump this week sent a letter through counsel to CNN telling them to (laughs) cease and desist their defamatory comments related to the quote unquote big lie, citing the uh, Mule movie, 2000 Mules movie. And it also had a preservation notice in anticipation of litigation. This got reported as, you know, Trump is going to sue CNN over the big lie for defamation. Why is this not worth your time? Because Donald Trump is definitely not going to sue 
CNN for defamation. Remember, he also sent a very similar letter uh, to CNN, in fact, for calling itself a news organization. He never (laughs) filed that lawsuit either. He did sue CNN in 2019 over an opinion piece about the Mueller probe. That was dismissed. Look, uh, this isn't going to be a lawsuit. It's certainly not going to be a winning lawsuit. To the extent they file another lawsuit against CNN, my suggestion to you, CNN, is quit trying to have these cases dismissed. You're making a huge mistake. Go through discovery. It's worth the money at this point. <laughs> well said. Well said. Thank you, Yeah, David. I've, I've Thank been you. wondering if there would be a time when one of these defamation defendants was uh, in these performative defamation cases, a well-resourced defamation defendant would say, okay, all right, here are my, here are my discovery requests. Here are my document requests. Please turn over all emails, text messages, et cetera. Uh, and, but of course, if you're their lawyer, you're saying, why would you do that? You're winning this case. But uh, look, the demand letter, by the way, includes this interesting line. Speaking of, uh, what DOJ is going to have to overcome in some of their indictable ideas. In this instance, President Trump's comments are not lies. He subjectively believes that the results of the 2020 presidential election turned on fraudulent voting activity in several key states. That's the George Costanza rule of law, right? But here's the other thing. If you're a news organization and you're well-resourced, isn't this the greatest news gathering uh, power you've ever had? The power of civil discovery where you can actually compel the production of documents? That's why it's stunning that they got that case dismissed in 2019. By the way, someone to follow on uh, Twitter, Gabriel Malor, he's a great legal Twitter poster. And the way he posted this uh, letter said, anyway, law geeks, if you're into self-harm, here's a link to the demand letter. (laughs) 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 Um, And with that, Jonah, you have your mouth agape. Oh, I was just going to say, it, it, it's one of these things that just reminds my favorite TV lawyer is always Lionel Hutz um, from The Simpsons. And it reminds me of when Homer wants to sue the all-you-can-eat restaurant for not letting him eat all he could eat. <laughs> and, and Lionel Hutz says, Mr. Simpson, this is the most blatant case of false advertising since my suit against the film The NeverEnding Story. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I actually always did think that was a really weird name for that movie. <laughs> I don't I didn't quite get it. All right. Thank you so much for joining us this week. And remember, like Steve said, if you want to join Dispatch Live on Tuesday nights at 8 p.m., you can become a member to do that. You actually see us on video and it's pretty awkward. Uh, or you can <laughs> hop in the comments section by becoming a member. <laughs> or you can just leave a comment wherever you're listening to this podcast and it helps other people find the podcast as well. And if you do none of those things, we still appreciate you and hope to talk to you next week.
we'll take a quick break to hear from Aura. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. And I'll tell you, not only have I given this picture frame to all the moms in my life, but I'm an only child and it's been really fun to see my friends with siblings give this frame to their moms and it turn into a passive aggressive war to see which siblings can upload more pictures of their children. The Aura app is so easy. You can sit there at the end of the day while you're watching TV and just upload a couple pictures from the day and really show your brother-in-law who's boss. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code DISPATCH at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. 